This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Was the formula for the perfect screenplay first discovered in the 1980s? Interior, rumpus room, day. Once again, it's time for the 80s. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture. From a couple of idiots. My name's Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co host, Ray. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Mm. Yes. What, uh, what movie character said that? Uh... Greetings and salutations, everyone? Also, the everyone? Or just greetings and salutations? Mm, yeah, it's from Heather's. Oh, see, I, well, is that even, that's not an 80s movie, right? It's yes. probably a 90s movie. Yeah, I think that comes in in 89. It must be 89, yeah. I saw it once. I don't know that it was, you know. Mm, I like it a lot. Okay. Well, hey, it, it's, you know, it's great that you brought that up because today we're going to be talking about screenplays from the 1980s, and a little bit later we'll be speaking with our guest, screenwriter and screen structure, screenwriting structure guru Chris Soth. But before all that, let's get caught up on 80s news. Okay, so, hey, uh, one thing I wanted to bring to your attention immediately was, did you catch, it just came out, the commercial for Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Do you watch the show? I do not. Okay, well, you'll want to check this out at least. The commercial for the upcoming seventh season, which starts on February 3rd, is an 80s, uh, a uh, retro-style commercial. In fact, they made it look like it was filmed on VHS tape. Mm-hmm. And uh, it looks, they made it look like it's an 80s TV, you know, 80s cop show. It's did, very funny. Did they at least all have mustaches in it? No, they didn't. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, or open, open collared shirts or no. Mm-hmm. They didn't uh, change the show. They used ah. clips from the real show, but they made it, you know, grainy and the static. And they, if you remember when you watched um, uh, shows after a while on tape, there was kind of like that su- color separation where you'd see almost like the red and blue image was kind of shifted off a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that happens sometimes. Yeah, especially if you rewatch something, I guess. The best part is, is back in the day, that was high technology and none of us even noticed that stuff. You know, you, yes. Very good point, yes. And at the time, that, you know, that was cutting edge. Yeah, I was like, wow, this is better than at the movies. And it's, you know, blue and red or whatever. In any case, they do that. They've got the 80s, you know, graphics for the for the titles. And they have a really great 80s sounding synth, uh, you know, score playing behind it. Anyway, chef's kiss to, um, <laughs> I don't know, I heard somebody say that recently. Chef's kiss to the Brooklyn Nine-Nine promo, which is very 80s-like. Again, more proof that the 80s, you know, best decade. Okay, and some other 80s news. Um we have learned that ABC has ordered a pilot for a sequel series to the classic 80s TV show, 30-something. What? Yes. That's considered a classic now? (laughs) Well, you know, first of all, did you ever watch 30-something? No. No. I didn't either. Because because in the 80s, we weren't 30-something. Right. And I remember other people watching it, adults, and think me thinking, those people on that show that are 30-something, that's old. Those people are (laughs) old. Yeah. We're like dinosaurs compared to that now. Right? Well, now when you look at friends that you know or people you know that are in your 30s, you're like, oh, they've got so much life to live. Mm-hmm. But 30-something when you're a kid, that's, yeah, it's ancient. Your teachers are like 30-something, which was, I don't know, probably like 60 or 70-something as far as yeah. how we conceived it. Yeah, well, 50 is the, the new 30 now, isn't it? We're going to keep raising it as we get older. So, mm-hmm. yes, 50 is the new 30, which means since we're in our 40s, we're in our 20s. Yeah, see, it all works out. 
and we'll change it in a couple of years. Um, but the show's going to be titled 30-something else. The else is in uh, parentheses. And it's, uh, they take the original characters from 30-something, you know, so those original actors and characters, including Timothy Busfield, who was in a legendary 80s movie. Do you remember that he's almost unrecognizable to Timothy Busfield fans? Plays a smaller part, but an important part in a movie. No. It's not coming to me. Revenge of the Nerds. Mm. So do you know who Timothy Busfield is? Not off the top okay, of my head. Okay, so I don't remember, I don't remember his again, name. Thirty something, not yeah, my exactly. bag. Okay, so he was in a bunch of stuff since. But before we even knew about that, we knew about him in thirty something. He played Poindexter. Is that who that is? That's Timothy Busfield. Yeah, really. Who's gone on to be wow. you know in so many wonderful dramatic roles, playing you know characters that far exceed you know that. Well, I shouldn't say it. that performance was great. I mean, a lot of those yes, characters. I, I agree. Poindexter was an amazing character. Yeah, and yeah. you would and, and look when we were kids, especially you would think that must be how that person is. You don't necessarily mm-hmm. know that. You know, this is an actor with range and can play this, you know, nerdy part or whatever, right? Anyway, they're now going to be the, you know, I guess the grandparents because their kids are now the ones in the 30s with their own children and their own problems that happen when you're 30-something. Why wouldn't they call the show 60-something? Yeah, I don't, I guess, yeah. And what, hmm, who would watch it? I guess the people who watch 30-something would watch it. Yeah, the same people who watch 30-something. Yeah. I don't know, maybe when you're 60-something, when you're actually (laughs) 60-something, you don't watch... Like, you know, ABC programs? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they could have called it the news. Old people love the news. <laughs> the news, but it's... <laughs> see, say news, but it's a work of fiction. Okay, but here, you could write your own follow-up to that. Yeah. I won't say anything. In any case, this reminds me that, you know, currently running on the air, we have a Magnum P.I. reboot and mm-hmm. a MacGyver reboot. Yeah. So, again, look, 80s. Speaking of reboots and speaking of screenplays, which, again, we're going to be talking about today, uh, in particular with our, our guest, Chris Soth, 1986's Space Camp is getting a reboot. Mikey Day and Streeter Seidel, 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 I'll say, uh, which are Saturday Night Live writers, and Mikey Day also appears on on the on Saturday Night Live as a cast member, are going to be penning the script. Hmm. Do you remember the original Space Camp? Uh, I remember it vaguely being decent, mm-hmm. but uh, since it's not a super classic, they can do whatever they want with that movie. Oh no. I don't know. I think we need to be the guardians of all 80s, everything. And you look, you always often say, hey, can't you come up with something original? Well, like I said, Space Camp, it's not like I'm defending a reboot of Indiana Jones or Ooh. something. Hmm. Yeah. Huh? yeah it's, we're defending Space Camp. Uh, well, okay. Look, I wasn't a huge fan. Uh, it was. I, I liked it. I definitely enjoyed it. I know folks that were younger yeah. when they saw it yeah, related yeah. it to it more. Yeah, it's a good. Really? It's a. It's a fun movie. But if I'm going to go to war over something from the '80s, that's not the one I'm going to war over. Yeah. So, and uh, maybe it'll be good. Yeah, maybe. Well, and if you remember, the movie starred uh, Leah Thompson, uh, a young Kelly Preston, Tate Donovan. And the feature debut of a young Joaquin Phoenix, who I believe still was known as Leaf Phoenix back mm. then. I don't think he changed his name to Joaquin until sometime later. The, the film was actually released in the summer of 1986 and didn't have a great box office, with which many people at the time attributed to the fact that something momentous and unfortunate happened in January of 1986. Mm-hmm. The uh, the boom. Yeah, the Challenger space mm-hmm. shuttle disaster. So just you know, five or six months later, you've got a, a movie about kids that are trapped in a space shuttle in space and, you know, and they may die in space and have to get back home. And so, um, yeah, I don't think the box office reflects at least how the movie is because the movie's better than probably the best box office. Well, like, uh, most, most movies in the eighties, once it goes to VHS, the yeah. numbers go way up. Yeah. We, yeah, we, we, we watched many movies, including that until we got that blue and red separation that we were, 
whatever it was. Anyway, but also I thought was interesting was learning from this article, which um, is that uh, in addition to um, Mikey Day and Streeter Seidel, I'm going to say, um, remaking Space Camp, these two guys are also doing a live action reboot or reinterpretation of another 80s classic, Inspector Gadget. Ooh. So, man, we got a lot of 80s stuff coming. Yeah, I just watched some Inspector Gadget last night. The original from the cartoon, early yeah. 80s? Yeah. Don Adams is the voice. Yeah. Because they've redone that even. That, you know, there's a yeah, new so, one on Netflix. Uh, they've done it. They did the movie, too. They did with, the movie. Uh, Broderick. Right. Yeah, and French Stewart was but, in the sequel. Um, yeah, I watched two episodes of that last night with the kid, and um, I laughed. Yeah. It's still good. Yeah, I loved that show. That was one, you know, we were talking to Yuri Lowenthal a while ago about cartoons, and he would say he'd hurry home to watch um, some anime cartoons. I mm-hmm. hurried home to see Inspector Gadget. I think they came yeah. on at three. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, so I'd have to run home. I would stop at the candy store and get, uh, maybe I said this already, a brownie for 25 mm-hmm. cents and an iced tea for 25 cents. So I only need 50 cents for my afternoon snack. Right, right before you went to the liquor store to play video games. <laughs> With any, yeah. Or arcade games, sorry. Mm, yeah, when, when the arcades started getting more popular, yeah, I was like, how am I going to spend these quarters? I learned a lot about finance then. Mm. Brownie or, you know, Dig Dug. <laughs> okay, and that was 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. Ack. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about sc- screenplays from the 1980s and screenwriting structure in the 1980s, because believe it or not, and maybe, I don't know, would you even have thought of this, right? When you imagine someone writing a movie... Do you imagine them sitting down and having a plan to write it, or they just start writing? Uh, I assume they have an overall story, but they just write that story down. Okay, but and and their overall story is, you know, the hero will do this, and then the bad guys does this, and in the end, this is what happens. Yep, right. That's pretty much how I would write a movie if I was going to write one. Right. So as you dig into it, you learn that you know many screenwriters. It's a little more involved in that. They a little more planning where they actually have, you know, moments planned out. And some of them are laid out pretty specifically, like within ten minutes in the movie this happens, and twenty minutes this happens, and you know, and so on and so forth. And they cre- you know, they, they actually flesh out these milestones and then start writing the story. You know, so they have both a rough outline and a more specific outline. Huh, that that's actually a good idea. <laughs> yes. If I had known that years ago, maybe I could have wrote a movie. Yes. Maybe some of the movies we talked about on the YouTube video. Yeah, maybe those could actually be real once we get some advice from Chris. Yeah. So check out that video too for for our, our uh, 80s film pitches that never happened. Um, but yeah, and, and the idea of it is is that if you get writer's block, which you hear no writers or I'm sure plenty of folks listening wanted to write something and get stuck, that you know having a structure to fall back on can get you out of those holes, you know, because it's like, well, I gotta I gotta make this certain thing happen at this page, and so it's a little easier. In any case, so I thought it would be fun for us to talk about you know different things related to movies and screenplays, etc., and so on. So to start with, I have a game for you or a challenge for you. I have the actual screenplays for, you know, a handful of films from the 1980s. And I thought, I'll just read you some of these, some of these things from these pages and see if based on what they described was supposed to happen, you can identify the film. All right, let's do it. Okay. And some of them, I, I've, I've omitted the names, so it's not a dead, you know, so it's not deadly obvious or, you know, so obvious what <laughs> it is and made some other changes. Yeah, I thought you were going to say some of these I have just winged it on and just <laughs> altered what I thought they were supposed to say. <laughs> no, I, I did omit some things that would make it just too easy. All right. um, and, and some of them I may have cut out some things, again, just for, the, for, for time. So if there's anybody out there tracking this, that's why. Um, okay, opening, exterior, the city. So then there's several shots. It's Blade Runner. There's several shots of a city. Okay, oh. then <laughs> after we get through this sort of montage right. of the city, interior, the rear, trailer, 
day. The trailer is packed almost floor to ceiling with cases of cigarettes. There's a narrow aisle of sorts between the stacks of cigarettes. Two small-time hoods, Carlotta and Mursky, stand in the center of the aisle, whispering to each other. Mursky says, the truck looks great. There's a fortune here, man. Carlotta says, I know. And a case mm-hmm. of cigarettes dropped from overhead narrowly misses them, landing at their feet. Is. A very good-looking, outgoing, totally unselfconscious man of 23 hops down into frame. That is good, fellas. No! <laughs> that's not even an 80s movie. What? That's definitely 90s. That's, that, that's the opening scene from Goodfellas, where Joe Pesci You're right, and the, the, the cigarette uh, Ray thing, Liotta, the, air, the, the airport the cigarette thing. All right. Yeah. He, he, he drops into frame. He's dressed very casually in a pair of jeans and a denim shirt. And he says, come on now. Hey, what do you want to do? Tell me something. The hell is that? Beverly Hills Cop? Beverly Hills Cop! Yes! That's it! <laughs> All right, here's another one. It's so, funny, though, because it's exactly the same kind of thing that happens with that. Uh, Goodfellas. It is. Yeah. I, I, yeah. There's a cigarette truck in that movie, too. Yeah, that's true. All right, so here's another one. And that was Beverly Hills Cop from 1984, the best year of movies of all time. Okay, Fade In. City of Angels lies spread out beneath us in all its splendor, uh, like a bargain basement promised land. Spiral down toward a lush high-rise apartment complex. Camera continues to move through the billowing curtains into the inner sanctum of the penthouse apartment. Spread-angled on a sumptuous designer sofa, sofa lies the single most beautiful girl in the city. On the table next to the sleeping Venus lies an open bottle of pills. Next to that, a mirror dusted with cocaine. Oh, I know this one. The girl throws open the glass doors, steps out onto the balcony. There beneath her lies all of nighttime L.A. Boom. I know this scene, and I'm trying to remember what movie it's from. You were just indicating with your hands that she jumps? Yeah, and she lands on the car. Okay, that's true. I know that. Um, This is a cop movie again. Yes. All right, I give up. Okay, this is Lethal Weapon. Ah, Lethal Weapon. Written by Shane Black. And I should point out Beverly Hills Cop, because we're talking about screenplays, was written by... hmm, it was written first by Danilo, Danilo Bach, uh, and then later rewritten by Daniel Petri Jr. And we talked about mm-hmm. that on the Eddie Murphy episode, I think, how it was written in one style, and then it, uh, Daniel Petri was brought in to make it funnier, and there was a whole history there you can check out. But anyway, that was Lethal Weapon, 1987, Shane yeah, Black. Yeah, now I remember. All right, here's an easy one for you. That was a pretty easy one, and I dropped the ball. Well, I wouldn't have got it. I, I don't have that kind of retention. Okay, um... Exterior road, day. Gradually, we begin to hear in the background the sounds of children playing. We cut to an, a, a softball field, same day. In mm-hmm. the background, a few dozen children in camp uniforms are enjoying a game of softball. In the foreground, uh, a girl is looking for someone. She's 17 years old, pretty. She wears a t-shirt with assistant counselor written on it. She fills out the shirt very well. Huh. That's the opening scene to this movie, or it, just a scene? It, this is the opening scene. Now, in my defense... I want to say Sleepaway Camp. Oh, that's a good guess. It's not Sleepaway Camp, but you're right, right genre. This, uh, it may not have been filmed like this or ultimately edited like this. These, mm-hmm. In some instances, these are like draft scripts. Ah. I'm not positive they were the shooting script, as they say. Ah. All right, so you got a camp. It's okay. definitely a horror movie. Yeah, we got a camp. We got kids. We got a counselor. Mm-hmm. 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 It's the only other horror movie with a camp in it. What, Friday? Yes. Friday the 13th? Friday the 13th, the first one. Does huh. it not open that way? No. And it goes on to talk about one of the counselors is at a shooting range or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I remember that part, too. Okay. But no, that movie doesn't open. Like, oh, maybe it does. All right. Should I give you any more? <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Um, all right. How about this one? Exterior. High jungle. <laughs> day one. Oh, you know, I should point out also, the Friday the 13th, uh, the first one was written by Victor Miller. That's from 1980. 
Okay. Exterior, high jungle, day one. The dense, lush rainforest of the eastern slopes of the Andes, the place known as the eyebrow of the jungle. (laughs) (laughs) Ragged, jutting walls are half hidden by thick mists. The main title is followed by this. Peru, 1936. A narrow trail across the green face of a canyon. A group of men make their way along of it. At the head of the party is an American. He wears a short leather jacket, a flapped holster, and a brimmed felt hat with a weird feather sticking in the band. Feather. Uh, This, again, it doesn't mean they shot. Is this an Indiana Jones movie? Raiders of the Lost Ark, right. A goddamn feather? It's in the script. So, you know, Mm. how they write it doesn't always how it works out, but... I'll bet George Lucas grabbed that feather out of that hat. <laughs> he probably CG, CG, CG'd it out or something. <laughs> He'll put it back in. <laughs> he put it back. <laughs> the director's cut. Oh, my gosh. Special edition. Like, I don't notice any. Wait a second. <laughs> yes, that was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark by Lawrence Kasdan. Mm. Um, and I'm going to give you two others that are going to, well, let's see, one or two others. I'm going to say that I make a point. Well, I'll give you one other. That, well, I'll give, give, me, you a, give me one more. Okay. Uh, this, okay. Exter- let's see how fast you can get this Matt. one. Exterior, New York Public Library. Day. Ghostbusters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought you would get that. Oh, I thought you would get that one pretty quickly. Oh, and, and Ghostbusters, of course, was written by Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd. So one thing that strikes me about screenplays, and why I read you all these ones from the openings, is that, um, you know, talking about screen structure, one of the things I read early as a person aspiring to be a screenwriter when I was in my teenagers was a book by a man named Sid Field. And I believe in that book is where I learned this idea of, you know, some of our most successful films have a really great captivating 10 minutes at the beginning of a film. Mm-hmm. Think your Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, Return of the Jedi, Empire Strikes Back. Goonies. Goonies. What was Goonies' beginning? The, uh, the car chase at the beginning with the Fratellis. Oh, is that right? Where okay. you see every main character as they zip through the city. Right. Um, so something that grabs your attention and also reveals information about the characters, right? Uh, not all films do this, but some of the very best ones do. And three of the ones I mentioned were all written by Lawrence Kasdan, you know, who also came on to uh, write some of our recent Star Wars movies. And also made, you know, just a ton of great movies, including one of the best, one of my favorites in the 1980s. He wrote and directed Silverado, uh, a Western film. In any case, in thinking about some of these great openings, it strikes me Back to the Future's opening is kind of boring. As great as I, I love that film. Yeah, you see the clock. Yeah. And he walks in and plugs the amp in. Yeah. Yeah, it's... And there's a lot of credits rolling throughout all yeah. this whole thing. Yeah. And he, he does the skateboard thing, riding behind cars, which we're still going to have you do at some point. Yeah, at some point, I got to do that. I got to break yeah, 10,000 followers, yeah. I think we need. Um, but, you know, they were, many people regard, and if you watch the, um, I think it was on the movies. No, no, no. There's a documentary on uh, Back to the Future I'm trying to remember what it's called, Back in Time or something like that. In any case, um, they talk about how in schools they use the Back to the Future screenplay to teach screenwriting because it's such a perfect screenplay. But uh, And maybe it's the written screenplay, not the shooting script. But I think they're referring mm. to the shooting script, and I thought that, that intru- introduction that, kind of fell kind of flat. That's weird. Yeah. Some of these you know, uh, openings to films, and, and many of these films, had an impact on me, you know, and you know, left you with certain... Um, captivated with certain feelings. I'm curious, though, first, before that, did you go to the movies often as a child? No. I would have guessed no, because I know you don't really care to go now. Yeah, I don't I don't go a lot. I only go if it's something that, obviously, if it's Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, I'm going. Right. That's pretty much it at this point. Um, I did see Willow in the theater. Uh, obviously, I have to really want to be dragged out of the house to go to the theater. Because it's so easy to watch movies now. But even then, it was more of a, a money factor. Right. Because by the, the point when VHS came out, 
it was it was an adventure to go to the video store and get the movie and all that and bring it home and you know it was a completely different vibe then so you know so and yeah when you say it was an adventure and and as far as like economy, you could spend a dollar and your whole family could watch the movie. <laughs> right. Um, when you say an adventure, do you mean literally like, uh, you know, traveling to the store and it was a distance well, from your home? Did you walk well, there? No, it wasn't that far away, but you have to drive to the store mm-hmm. and then everybody would be in different aisles holding up movies mm-hmm. and it's yelling, I want to see this. Right. And someone would yell, we just saw that three weeks ago. <laughs> right. And then you would always, then you'd have to go get the pizza right. because um, the pizza place is right next door usually to the movie right. place back in the 80s. So you'd have to get a pizza, and then you got to go home and have pizza and watch a movie. Right. So it was a whole big an evening plan right. in the 80s to watch a movie. Right. Or you went to your friend's house as a teenager, and the exact same thing, except now you could order pizza and have it delivered and watch a movie. Right. Yeah. So that, that I think for me, that's when the theater started to die out for me, was hmm. when we could watch movies at home on VHS. Right. Yeah, and you're, you know, you're making my point, was that, you know, a lot of these films and the experience of seeing films uh, left you with or leading up to this sense of adventure in itself. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I remember, you know, talking about Lethal Weapon, I remember my friend Craig and I, when we saw Lethal Weapon, you know, and it came out in, what, 87, so we were 16 years old or something like that, which now I'm wondering, I think it was rated R, how did we get in to see that? Oh, uh, they never checked. Yeah, anything. I don't remember. And oh, Craig would have been 17, he's older, but... Uh, in, in any case, we left that movie, and throughout the movie, we're going to be cops. You know, we're going <laughs> to, yeah. you know, we're still in know what we're going to do with our lives. We're going to grow up. We'll be cops. We'll be friends, you know, still. <laughs> yes. You know, I don't think we settled who's Riggs and Murtaugh. I, I would think I would be more of the Riggs. Uh, I mean, he'd probably say I'd be more of Murtaugh. But in, in, in any <laughs> case, you'd probably say that too. Yeah, you couldn't help but get caught up in it, you know, and, and, and a good part of it was obviously, you know, some of these, the movie openings, you know, um, uh, a car chase or a, a big bang like that. Um, and you remind me, going to the movies, I probably told you this before, but going to the movies to get to see, well, Lethal Weapon, we probably got dropped off. But I know for a fact when we saw um, Temple of Doom, which was another film with a great, I love that opening of Temple of Doom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When we, in order to get there, because, you know, we lived in a city. So in the city, you had a choice of, no, no, first of all, no matter where you went, unless you happen to live where these things were, odds are you had to take a bus to get there or you had to walk, you know, it was, things were far. Uh, and during the summer, when your parents are at work, if you wanted to go do something, you had to, you know, do it on your own. So you're walking really far somewhere, you're riding a bike, or. But we had a choice of taking a bus to one area to see a movie. Craig, I remember, had told me a story where he had gotten mugged there, you know, <laughs> in the alley, like leading up to the movie theater. So we that was off. We're not doing that. I wasn't interested in that. So in order to see a movie, which started opening these megaplexes, we had to figure out how to get there. You know, I remember getting out a phone book with a map in it. <laughs> it was an adventure, calling up bus stations, what bus, you know, we need and what time. We were able to plot it out that we can take a bus and get to a certain location that was at the movie theater. But when we got left off and we were dumped off in the middle of nowhere, we were, it was literally like under a, um, a overpass, you know, <laughs> like you, you could have seen like a city there of maybe, you know, uh, underbridge yeah. dwellers or something. Um, but it was an overpass, probably like where you ate your candy bar or something like that kind of thing. Yeah, probably similar. And then we realized we were on the other side of a major highway from the movie theater. We could see it there, <laughs> but it was on the other side of like six or seven lanes of traffic, you know, you mm-hmm. know, 55, 60 mile an hour traffic on this road. So what did we do? I mean, look, the movies are mm, over there. They're right there. And, you know, if we were Indiana Jones and we had mapped this out, this adventure, you know, we got to just follow through. So we proceeded to run across this this highway, 
the first, <laughs> just like any of these films, you have to have like, you know, you have to get the one thing, then do the other thing. What we had to do was get to the cement divider. You mm. know, oh, yeah, that's important. Which separated east and west. If we can make it there, there's a little cushion of a shoulder. Mm-hmm. That was the most dangerous place to be, it turns out. <laughs> because as the cars whiz by, and they don't care that there's a bunch of kids hanging on the cement divider. Nope. The, they go by so fast that air, you feel like you're going to suck you off the divider, you know, or mm-hmm. knock you over it. Anyway, we made it across there, and eventually, you know, we were able to see the movie. <laughs> but it was part of that spirit of being caught up in these stories and these ideas that was, you're right, carried over into actually seeing the films themselves. Yeah, the adventure to get there was just as much fun as the movie. Yeah. Uh, and that's a big part of uh, life right there, buddy. Yeah, I don't... <laughs> like. And <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for listening to The Idiots. <laughs> I don't know that... Look, I love, I love going to the movies. Unlike you, I don't mind driving places, and yeah. I like uh, going to the movies. Uh, it's great now that you can you know, uh, buy a seat and know where you're going to sit ahead of time, although I still drive my family crazy because I'll still <laughs> make them get there an hour early because yeah. I still have this feeling like we might get locked out somehow. Um, but I don't know that I get as caught up in the you know, getting there and all that stuff. Yeah, it's not, it's not as exciting as it was back in the day. I don't know that my kids even get as excited. Yeah, I know mine don't. Hmm. I wonder if it's because they're not involved in the adventure to go there and pick it out that visceral experience of holding a vhs tape and searching through all the different copies and seeing if they have it only to find out it's an empty one or Mm -hmm. you know yeah there's such there's just something exciting about the whole process back then yeah it's not like that anymore because you just get caught up in that experience yeah i miss going out in the yard and pretending to be rambo (laughs) hey did you have one of those knives with the compass in the handle Uh, of course we had that knife and they open it up and there's like matches inside of it and a a compass on the back had like remember had those two rings like that saw that wire you could cut stuff with or strangle someone like a garrot yep all right so hey that's that so and you know we're talking about uh movies and having this effect on somebody you know whether it's your because you creates a sense of spirit and adventure going to see a movie or capturing a movie at a video store or on your way home from the movies it has to do with the effectiveness of screenwriters and what we're learning is it requires some planning uh and we're going to talk about that in a little bit with our guest today chris soth guest today is the author of Million Dollar Screenwriting, The Mini Movie Method. In it, he provides a formula for conquering the seemingly insurmountable task of transforming a blank computer screen into a story worthy of the movie screen. And the title is not simply puffery. Our guest sold his first screenplay, 1998's Firestorm, for roughly $1 million while he was still in film school. And now, in addition to his book, he guides some aspiring screenwriters personally from story idea to script completion. To find out more, visit him at ScreenplayMentor.com. Please welcome to the show, Chris Soth. Hello, Will. Hello, Ray. And hello to all the idiots out there. Yes. And thank you, Chris, for your time today. Uh, Earlier on the show, Ray and I were talking about um, the effect that movies have on us. And acknowledging that we know that movies don't just happen by accident, that they first begin with the word on the page. And so we appreciate the perspective you'll provide uh, for us there. So I'm curious, because it'll give us context for the perspective you're going to provide. Um, Do you consider the 1980s your era in the same way that uh, Ray and I do? 
Well, first off, we're talking about the 1980s, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, I would say largely yes, uh, particularly when it comes to, uh, you know, my, my era of film. I, I became an adult in the 80s, so I'm a class of 1980 in high school. So okay. right as I'm getting into college and, and moving out of my own, it's your decade. Uh, and I'm class of 84, 1984, uh, in, uh, in college. So it was, uh, our responsibility to make sure that George Orwell's grim, grim prophecy did not come true. So, uh, apologies. <laughs> yeah. On yeah. That where one. are you on that, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I dropped the ball. Uh, so I, uh, you know, I was, I was saying to you before we began that a little bit in the seventies, you know, you're, you're young and impressionable when you're a teen and, uh, you yeah. know, Watergate happened in my youth and all the, uh, sort of dystopian films that came out after that start in the 70s uh, and then you know a much more positive and upbeat happy ending films start up in the 80s with reagan and morning in america again uh where uh, you know art is reflecting life or at least uh, the spirit or at least uh, you know the tyrannical uh, opinions of our government right and uh, and and there we are so i would say i have a foot in each decade of you know maybe uh, we made the decade from 75 to 85 yeah uh or 78 to 88 you might say okay that's that's my 10 years where I was, I, I was most formed. You know, it's interesting that you say about how the films took this more upbeat turn in the 80s because we've talked on some other episodes with some other folks, including some uh, politics professors and even a former U.S. congressman, about how what was happening in pop culture may be, may have been a reaction or a rejection or, you know, counter to what was really happening in the country because, you know, economically, as you know, we had a lot of folks that were having a hard time. And even though we had greed is good on film, you know, greed wasn't saving a lot of folks. Um, from poverty, for example. Absolutely. Wow, that took a turn you didn't expect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. But um, I, I like to say, Gordon Gecko, not actually the hero of that film. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, if you paid attention uh, to Walter. I would say a lot of people from our generation, and I've got many friends, maybe they're even listening, grew up seeing, revering him and, you know, going into businesses that had them, you know, pursuing, much like Gordon Gecko, this idea, you know, making money off the backs of other people. Wow, I'm getting real political here, I think, Ray. Ray tries yeah. to keep I've been from... shaking my head for the last couple minutes, and <laughs> you're just not listening. In any case, I just saw, coincidentally, I saw earlier today, Chris, an, an article that was arguing that the 70s were really the, a better decade for films than the 80s. You know, I, I sort of think it's apples and oranges. Film, films have different goals, and I, I, uh, I think the, the 70s films get a lot of credit for daring to have dark endings. Mm. And uh, a lot of people feel like that's a more legit work of art when it has a dark ending. I feel like sending an audience out happy is just as noble a goal right. as you know, sending them out uh, you know, crying or in a dark mood, realizing that there are dark corners in our world you know, into which they have not looked. Right. So you have uh, you know, films like The Parallax View uh, and All the President's Men were telling the true story of the Watergate scandal and, you know, uh, and Chinatown and, uh, you know, uh, Cuckoo's Nest, One Flew Over to Cuckoo's Nest, right. to, you know, just to go to Jack Nicholson's career, all of which have, you know, dark endings and do it quite effectively. Uh, but I would argue in the 80s, you have feel-good films uh, or, you know, exciting films that, that come along and, and uh, have you in the, feel, the, the theater, you know, feeling good. And we look back in the 70s, and I've listed a lot of films that are, you know, great historical significance, but what ruled the box office was Star Wars. Right. So, uh, and in the 80s, uh, you know, and this is considered, you know, by some, by, you know, some critics, uh, bad news that 
uh, we only want to make blockbusters now. And that has really come to be the case, you know, here in this um, uh, century. Um, some people view that as a, as a bad turn. Some people view it as a good turn. I say, you know, there's room for both of these films in the marketplace. Even, you know, dark 70s style films, you just know you're going to make less money and you have to budget accordingly. Right. And release, you know, in the in the off season, not compete with the blockbusters. But uh, right now, as we're speaking, in the in the run up to the Oscars and that kind of thing, is when those films kind of come out. And and back then, I would say, uh, in the seventies and even in the eighties, things were not so compartmentalized. Now it's very obvious. I think everyone can see see the strengths. Right. You know, okay, it's December, and that means a lot of Oscar winners. You know, a lot of people trying to get Oscars are going to come out, and those might be, be dark, serious films. And here it is, the summer, it's time for popcorn. And we're, we're going to watch uh, sequels and remakes of, uh, of popular films all, all summer long. Yes. And something from Pixar. Talking about Oscar seasons coming up, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I think we agree with you. You know, if a movie's entertaining, I think it was David Mamet who said, you know, the job of a, of a playwright is to essentially entertain the audience. You're not there to educate them. You're not there to, you know, change their political views or, you know, et cetera. I just give them a good time, like you're suggesting. Mm -hmm. Do you, in light of that, in light of the Academy Awards coming up, do you tend to agree that the best screenplays win the Academy Awards? I, I almost never agree. Yeah. Certainly, I rarely agree with, with the, the Best Picture Oscar. And screenplay, it's a little different. I can always pick the winner out of, out of what the nominees are. Uh, but I think I ra rarely agree there as well. I think American Beauty was uh, was an example where, in both cases, I agreed that was the best picture and by far the screenplay. Hmm. Um, uh, Chicago, the year it was out, I thought, yeah, that was that was the most fun I had in the movies uh, this year, uh, and, uh, and and it was great. But there there are very few uh, uh, others where I say yes, me and the Academy, best picture, we agree. Right. Uh, but I, I tend to be a popcorn chewer. I mean, what I what I tend to write, what I tend to work on, tends to be uh, the uh, box office fun rides that uh, do not get a lot of uh, credit from the cinema cinematic artists. Uh, Martin Scorsese, speaking in the seventies and eighties, quite quite recently, uh, you know, railing against uh, the kind of popcorn movies right. that are ruling the box office now. Do uh, do you think the Joker is kind of a throwback to that seventies style of movies? And I'll add eighties uh, to that as well. Well, it's very interesting. It's, it's this crazy hybrid. I actually uh, uh, wrote on this recently. It is obviously quoting uh, two Scorsese, De Niro films, Taxi Driver, King Comedy, sure. uh, and, and almost merging them. A man slowly going mad with a, with a comedic bent and a desire to get on television becoming uh, you know, more and more crazy as we go on. But he's a DC comic books franchise character. When Scorsese made Taxi Driver in the seventies, uh, he created the he and Paul Schrader, uh, the screenwriter, created the original character of Travis Bickle. And when he made King of Comedy some years later, probably in the eighties, uh, you guys would know the date on that better than I would. They created an original character of Rupert Pupkin. Uh, both characters played by De Niro right. with an edge of craziness. Now uh, he has to wear makeup. Hmm. And he has, has to be uh, a franchise character. And for a writer, that's a little bit sad. Hmm. Uh, a lot of great original characters were created in the 80s, too. I, I think Rupert Pumpkin right. amongst them. And now, if you're going to you know, throw a lot of money around in a movie and even do a deep psychological study uh, for that movie to make a lot of money, uh, that character should come from DC or Marvel. So 
I don't know what Joker is going to do. Uh, we're talking about present day movies, not the eighties yet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. You know, are we going to see, you know, a lot of movies with a seventies psycho or eighties psychological aesthetic applied to, you know, Mighty Mouse uh, or another franchise character? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, it, it will be interesting to see. Uh, it's it's too bad and sad for me as a writer who creates original work and isn't uh, you know working for Marvel or DC uh, or uh, Pixar with or Disney or with some of their franchise characters. I guess Disney owns them all now. Um, to, to say okay, you know, which which character can we stamp this very interesting psychological twist you've come up with <laughs> uh, versus could we create our own original character and our own version of the Joker? our own version of Travis Bickle, who is, you know, but a taxi driver. So uh, I thought it was very interesting. I enjoyed the movie. Uh, you know, don't, don't get me wrong there. Uh, but, you know, as, as a writer, I, I mourn a little bit for the creation of original work. That's something I've been complaining about is um, how there's such a lack of originality in movies. I hate right. reboots. I hate them just redoing the same things over and over again. Uh, exactly. This, is, this has happened in my lifetime as, as a screenwriter in Hollywood. Um, you know, I, I sold an original screenplay. I was very lucky to see it made. Uh, it did not become a franchise. And since then, I've seen students become more corporate. And that's where they want to place their bets on what they think are sure things. And that means big stars and already recognizable brands. Uh, it is easier to sell another Coke than to invent uh, a new Coke. Uh, and, uh, we saw that fail. Uh, <laughs> yes. You're saying, you're saying new Coke yeah. was better than old Coke because it was in the 80s? I hardly <laughs> right, Yeah, and I seem to remember that, that Coke did that just to make people, remind people that the original Coke's really good. <laughs> well, Pepsi had just won the Pepsi Challenge. Ex- right? Exactly <laughs> and, right. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and Coke mi- migrated over there and either realized they were wrong or, yes, it was, it was an evil, dastardly clown to say, Yes, we took it away, right. and now you miss that, don't you? <laughs> and even this uh, likely plot of Coca-Cola, this likely nefarious plot of Coca-Cola, is a bit of theatrics. It's a bit of drama. It's a marketing campaign, sure, but it's a story with a beginning, middle, and end that they sold us, you know, even with a, replete with the protagonist. Um, and that brings us to uh, what we primarily wanted to talk with you today, or wanted to additionally talk with you today, Chris, is... The structure, the formula, the methods for bringing a story to the movie screen. Um, Now, I I first became aware that successful screenplays, and I don't mean successful in the box office sense. That's for an audience to decide. I mean successful in the narrative sense. Um, Anyway, I first learned this in the 1980s when I read Sid Field's book, Screenplay. And uh, it was eye-opening. When did you first become aware that uh, good films shared a DNA? Well, you know, I think right around the same time we're talking about, uh, 1980, um, you know, as I, as I go to college, I start studying dramatic literature. And we are taught the plot points of structure and, and uh, from Aristotle's Poetics on. I mean, if you go from the history of drama, the first written work we have is Aristotle's Poetics, and he posits that there is one uh, plot point. He finds the first one called the climax, uh, or the peripatia, to use your ancient Greek, Thank you. Uh, or reversal. Uh, you know, about two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through a 90-minute Greek tragedy, which is what he's writing about the poetics. And Sidfield keeps that one, and he has another one, which comes to be called the end of Act 1. Um, and the, the, the climax comes at the end of Act 2. 
And then there's a third act after that. So it's a three-act structure that we start to talk about. But it, but if you actually attend film school, as I did 10 years after uh, I uh, took my degree in dramatic literature, uh, and you go to USC, uh, where I briefly learned this, uh, or you buy my book on Amazon, you'll see that there is a structure, and this comes along with film, where there is a plot point every 15 minutes or so. And that first plot point at about one comes at 30, so that's covered, and the uh, second plot point comes at 90, because that's also equally divided by 15. And there are eight of these 15-minute segments in a two-hour movie. And I call them mini-movies, because they in themselves have their own structure like a movie, uh, turning, turning the whole movie structure or story structure into a right. fractal structure in which, you know, uh, they, 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 you know, the smaller pieces are, add up to make the bigger pieces, but are, uh, structurally, uh, congruent themselves. Uh, and so each of these 15 minute segments has its own tension on, on which the main tension relies. And I, and I uh, you know, the main tension rides on what's going to happen in this, in these 15 minutes. I'll use an example here from a great 80s film right at the beginning of the decade. I was excited to talk to you guys because two of my top five films were made in your decade. decade and here's the first of them. Yes. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Perfect. Okay. Two, two films that raised the bar on action films and made sure that no action adventure film was ever the same after. Uh, and in Raiders of the Lost Ark, at the end of the first mini-movie, about 15 minutes in, Indiana Jones uh, is asked, what's this thing uh, called the headpiece of the staff of rock? <laughs> and he says, in one line, the next, what the next three 15-minute segments are going to be, because the headpiece <laughs> of the staff of rock, you take it into the map of the tent, Step one. <laughs> and, the, and, and it shows you where the, the location of the well of the soul. <laughs> and in, so, so that's right. 15 minutes in. In the next segment, he goes and gets the headpiece of the staff of rock, just ahead of the Nazis. Uh, and the tension is there. There is, we hope he can get the headpiece. We fear the Nazis will get it. He nearly dies trying to get it. Uh, and, and he does get it. Uh, the next one after that is, guess what? Can he get into the map room? <laughs> and we hope that he can. We fear that he won't. He nearly <laughs> dies. And the next one after that is, can he get to the well of the soul? Right. Okay, so he is laid out in one line <laughs> the next 45 minutes of the movie. Right. Right? Um, and, uh, and it's very, very simple tension. The, you know, we hope he'll get the thing. We fear the Nazis will get it or kill him while he tries to get it. In which case, what's the, and what's the main tension of this whole thing? Who's going to get the Ark? We hope uh, Indy gets it. We fear the Nazis will get it and rule the world. Right? Right. Uh, and, uh, and so that, that's a great example that I use in my lectures all the time and happens to be, I think, from 1981. You guys will know better than I do. Right. Uh, uh, the, I think it was released in the summer of 81. And uh, and raise the bar in action adventure forever thereafter. If you look at the Bond movie that comes after that, the lamentably titled Octopussy, right. it's a whole different <laughs> uh, uh, kettle of fish as to the action uh, Roger Moore is going through uh, there and the amount of action that's in the movie, thanks to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, if you ask me. Right. Uh, and... Uh, uh, so uh, I, I now don't remember the question, but you, I guess you were talking about, about film structure, right? So very simply, there's Raiders of the Lost Ark, an iconic 80s film laid out. But even when it came out, they were talking about how it was a cliffhanger classic and harkened back to the old serials right. of, of, the, of you know, the silent era and into the 30s. Um, those were 15 minutes a week. 
every week on a Saturday and they would add up to a story. And some of the early adventure films were eight of those stitched together uh, in Buck Rogers style uh, or something like that. So Indy both harkens back to that and uh, gives a new coat of paint uh, for a new decade, which we're here to talk about today, you idiots. (laughs) What strikes me as remarkable is, and I know that, uh, you know, in part, and I learned this from you, the idea between, be, behind the mini-movies and them being 15 minutes was the idea that we can end these, sh- these serials or that you can only fit roughly 15 minutes of footage on a, on a reel uh, in, a, in, the, in a theater before the reel would have to be changed over. So screenwriters early on would write to the reels. But it feels so right, um, in using the different right as in, you know, correct, you know, in our, in our bodies, in our hearts, our minds, that the movies have these beats I know it's coincidental that fi- film reels can only hold 15 minutes, but it seems like it's a heck of a coincidence that also that those beats feel like they're happening and those mini movies are happening, you know, beginning and ending at times that feel organic and not uh, based on some, you know, uh, uh, you know, archaic technology. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think, it, I, I think it is a happy coincidence. However, you know, I can go back to stories that, uh, that, uh, Take, you know, the take place before the making of film and are quite good. And I can point out to you where the tensions are breaking. And it, and it has nothing to do with when the curtain was raised and lowered in a play. Right. Um, as, they, as they are in the end, uh, at the end of Act 1 and Act 2. So it is just good story. And this, this technological thing happens uh, with, you are correct, you know, 15 minutes of, of uh, a story held on, on a movie reel uh, that facilitates it. And, uh, and it just becomes more obvious there. Is it a coincidence? Is, you know, is it in our blood that we just love a, uh, a movie that, uh, you know, where chapters sort of end every, every 15 minutes like clockwork? I, I just want to say yes, but I can also probably find you some movies that where the first act is, you know, plays a little more as three 10 minute sequences. Right. You know, short, short answer. Yes. Yep. There's something in our, in our blood that makes us, you know, in our genes, that makes us love a tension that builds for 15 minutes and resolves with a twist. But also, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to turn away one that does, that does it in 10 minutes. If, right. it's, if it's a real shocker. Sure. Yeah. I think to, you know, to further that point, maybe is this, you know, again, I referred to Sid Field, uh, you know, a few moments ago as my first awareness of someone who documented screenplay structure. And I don't know Lawrence Kasdan's history. Maybe he studied at USC and learned the sequencing method. I don't know, were they teaching it back in the 80s, which is roughly, you know, sort of the progenitor of your, of your method? I, I, I don't, I think maybe, you know, real insiders knew it. I know that Frank okay. Danielle, who founded our department, is sort of the guy who kept him alive you know, from, from the 40s and 50s, when it kind of went away and died till the 80s and 90s. And he founded the department at Columbia University. Uh, and I think that would have been in the, in the 80s. And then moved on to uh, USC to find the department I, I took my degree from. And I, only, and I only bring that up because, you know, you bring up Raiders as an example, the mini-movie method. But and I, I think Sid Field is ultimately referred to Raiders as being, you know, sort of the epitome of his paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it hitting all of his different structural, you know, points. Um, so it's interesting to me that, again, you know, you're just hitting on something that's, you know, in our DNA, um, you know, much like, you know, Joseph Campbell, but for a different element of structure, I suppose, that, um, you know, Sid Field could be right and you could be right um, about how Raiders is, you know, sort of, a, you know, epitome of screenwriting for these different reasons. Um, 
in your within your mini movie method that said in your mini movie method and we know that each story you know serves a, a different if you read the book and you should read read Chris's book you learn that if he, within that if every mini movie serves its own sort of structural purpose um, but do you also find within those mini movies hitting certain beats that are the milestones by other um, you know professors or, or teachers of screenwriting oh absolutely I, I think I mentioned that you know Sid Field end of Act one end of Act two or first culmination or second culmination fall exactly where two of my mini movie beats fall. Uh, and I think Sid Field in his, in his later work uh, recognized that there were more plot points than, than, he, than he had said in the original work screenplay. Right. And so he, he, he came around pretty, pretty quickly, I think. Uh, if you read his last book, and he had left us, uh, and he, left, uh, he had something called The First Pinch of the Second Act, which, you know, coincidentally, uh, I think it's no coincidence at all, comes up about 45 in the second second act pinch, which comes 75 pages in. All of these are multiples of 15. All these get around to, right. you know, to the idea that every 15 minutes we we have a turn in our plot. That's crazy. So, it's crazy. Yeah, the short answer is yes. And, and we're all talking about the same thing and yep. using you know, different terminology, I would say. I, I happen to think this method that I was taught at USC and you know, my study of it since is, is the best thing right. going, but I... Yep. I buy everybody else's product and read everybody else's book all the time. Sure. And for folks who may be listening in or aspiring screenplay, screenplay, screenwriters rather, um, should understand at least briefly that, you know, you take essentially what seems like, you know, an insurmountable task writing, you know, 110 or 120 pages of, uh, of a screenplay and break it down to just, hey, let's write eight short stories essentially to make it more manageable. Right. That said, your, your section or your chapter on f- how you, you know, tie fractals to your method I think it reads a little like a manifesto. I mean that in the Unabomber sense. Wow. Um, <laughs> look, I, I do appreciate your method very much. But, but I only, it, it, it's, it's brilliant how you pull it together. But, um, and I, I guess I thought two observations. One, and maybe this was intentional or not, but sort of how you talk about, you know, this forgotten mathematics uh, from, was it Julia to uh, Mendelbrot? Yeah. Seems a little bit about the story about you, right? I mean, how you've taken something that was, you know, this sort of, again, st- screen structure habit analyzed, but you took it and, you know, had this different take on it that made it more accessible. Well, I, I'd like to think so. I mean, when you say Unabomber Manifesto, that's, that's, <laughs> I, I do feel a little bit, because I was departing from my USC education there and trying to add what yep. my own uh, thinking had been in the, in the 10 years at that time, because I get 20 years now, yes. uh, had, had realized um, I was trying to legitimize that with some actual mathematical thinking, and I did this research on fractals. And just embarrassing now to hear you say Julia Mandelbrot. <laughs> uh, to, to, but I will say that uh, you know I can break down 15 minutes of film and show you how the eight steps of structure yeah. are recapitulated, and I can break down a two-minute scene and show you how the eight steps of the structure uh, are recapitulated. And when I have to write a speech that sums up. Uh, a character is chained in the third act, I look to that structure as well. It will often be eight or 16 sentences long uh, where they will say, you know, uh, first I was this way and then I was called to adventure and then I was, and I didn't want to, and I changed. <laughs> the refusal. And I, and I fill in how that character has done that and it always works out very well. And I've spotted several movies since. I'm sure those writers are coming to it accidentally. I, uh, I never wait for inspiration. I try to have a method for everything until it comes along. And so I get a little obsessive, and uh, that, that is a little OCD. You're right. I was a little <laughs> like the Unabomber <laughs> cabin typing away. Uh, however, I stand yep. by it, yes. uh, blushing a little bit at, uh, at, at how that chapter is written. 
Uh, and people have said to me, well, my head started spinning at that point. Uh, however, I will say the, the, the method is there and it works. Uh, even, even if, uh, the, uh, the writer was filled with uh, brash egotism. <laughs> well, I think, you know, um, it, it certainly, it, it, again, it makes sense. Um, where you, where uh, maybe to play counterpoint, you know, this idea of taking a larger film and breaking it up into eight, eight or shorter films, um, again, it seems, makes it a lot more, it makes it a lot less intimidating. But the idea of the fractals, where then, like you said, you know, you can analyze two minutes within the film and break that into it, it does, that then now returns to be intimidating to me because I think, it's hard for me to see it, you know, at that, uh, you know, that minute, you sure. know, that micro. But, you know, it's only there for the writer who can't write the two-minute scene to, okay. to rely on. It. I see. Uh, you know, I, I, if you ask me, am I doing that with each of my movies, the answer is no, except when they're in trouble. Yeah. I, and I, I hope I say that in the chapter that, you know, I will do that in a rewrite. I won't try to do it the first time through. And I will do it in a, in a scene that is giving a lot of trouble uh, and, I, and I realized, okay, well, you have a technique for this. Now that inspiration, the muse is not calling you to write the scene. You do have a technique for this if you need it. Right. Uh, and, and you can come up with a better version of the scene. But, uh, you know, am I breaking, uh, you know, all eight mini movies down into eight beats and now I have 64? And am I breaking down each of those, you know, two minute scenes <laughs> into eight beats and now I have 500, I think it's 512 with eight times 64? Um, no. I'm, I, even I, the creator of the method, is not doing that, nor, nor, <laughs> nor do I recommend it. Nor do I think, you know, every eighth, you know, every 120-page screenplay should have 62-minute scenes, each broken down into one-eighth pages. You know, that, that will be boring and rhythmic, and you should have, you know, parse up your long and, and, and your short scenes, etc. Uh, do I believe there's a rhythm to that that can be perceived that if you could find a good benefit from like every symphony conductor, I do. Hmm. And every symphony composer, I think, yes, you could find that too. Uh, but it, it, it could, it, you are correct, lead to madness yep. to obsess that way. And it will, it will keep you from getting your work done. So uh, most writers, however, are, are on the very near end of, I can't figure out how to fill this page. I'm 50 pages in, I, and I'd rather speak. Right. That need technique to get them through that versus I'm at the edge of technique and now... I've gone to madness and I'm the John Nash of screenwriting. Only I can say that. <laughs> only I, I am looking at this, my friend. You got to uh, put that on a cover of something, you, your next book, <laughs> the John Nash of screenwriting. Um, well, I remember when I first read Sid Field in the early 80s again. So uh, as I was seeing films, then I'd be sitting in a theater and, you know, the inciting moment would happen and I'd look at my watch and it would be, you know, 20 minutes in or something like that. Mm -hmm. Do you find that this uh, awareness of screenwriting and, and having spent, you know, so much of your time, you know, developing this method and using this method that it detracts any from your enjoyment of films because you are aware of these various, you know, beats? Short answer, no. Uh, long, longer answer is yes, but no. Um, which is to say... <laughs> Uh, it is the rare film that sweeps me up and catches me so up that uh, catches me so up in it that I, that I forget myself and I don't look at my technique, right? And I don't say, okay, this thing's going to happen. It's going to happen in about five minutes. And I do do that. And most films become a study for me. Yeah, I'd like to ask you, um, um, as a screenwriter, what is your favorite movie? Okay. But as a fan, what is your favorite movie? Oh, well, that, that's an in interesting distinction. You know, as, okay, so I will say as a fan, uh, my favorite movie is It's a Wonderful Life. As a screenwriter, uh, that's, that's, uh, I, I feel it has some flaws. But hmm. 
I cannot uh, but admit that I cry at the end every time. It was the most emotionally effective movie for and, and my experience viewing it. Also, I would say as a fan, I love uh, What's Up, Doc. That's, that's from the 70s. Sure. Uh, and as a screenwriter, I love it uh, for its wit. Um, I will say that uh, I think I said to you earlier, and really my top five films uh, after It's a Wonderful Life are in no particular order. Okay. Um, it's, not a, it's not a hard ranking at, uh, uh, at two, three, four, and five. Uh, I might say Casablanca is number two. And that I would also say as a screenwriter. It's a perfect screenplay. Um, but uh, also appearing in the top five, uh, um, and sometimes my top five is six because we two share the action adventure slot, is the aforementioned Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. I was surprised you, 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 know, you didn't say, what's your other film in the 80s, Chris, that changed everything? Uh, but if it is not obvious, here it is, uh, also from the 80s, end of the decade. Uh, the 80s are sort of bookended uh, for me by Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Die Hard. Wow. Okay. So can we pause for a second, sure. Chris? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Uh, it absolutely is. Yes. Yeah. Proven right again. I, <laughs> I, 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 am here, I am here to tell you. Uh, her name is Holly. For God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, coincidentally, I'll just do a shout out here for, for you. I, I uh, attend a, a play called The Very Die Hard Christmas, uh, put, a, put on by a bunch of Die Hard fans in Minneapolis every year. <laughs> Yes, and, I've uh, seen that, it that makes it very strong. <laughs> it makes a very <laughs> strong argument. Uh, but Die, Die Hard is, is a Christmas movie, and coincidentally, my other favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life, is, is a Christmas movie. Hmm. So yes, yes, it absolutely is. So uh, Die Hard also raises the bar in action, and those and those two are in my lifetime. And really, as I am making a transition in my life from performer to writer, right, uh, where I can see what they're doing, I. I don't know that I could have written Raiders, but by the time Die Hard comes along, I say not only do I love this, and is it is it now one of my favorite movies when I see it, but I know what they're doing, mm. and I can see how I can become a writer from this. And within a couple of years of Die Hard coming out, I am attending film school and writing, uh, you know, what would be uh, roughly called a Die Hard ripoff. <laughs> Uh, but, but more kindly called a Die Hard homage, uh, where I have you know, shifted the venue of Die Hard and through the, the hostage situation of Die Hard to a forest fire, and this becomes my chief credit and uh, a biggest success in screenwriting, a movie called Firestorm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I write and sell while you know while I am in film school. So uh, you know I have, I have much reason to uh, to love Die Hard and what happens. Uh, to action adventure film in the eighties, um, as, as bracketed by by those two films, I said, uh, "Raiders of the Lost Ark" casts a very long shadow, influences the Bond films, which are sort of the only action adventure films before uh, "Raiders of the Lost Ark" comes along, really. Uh, and by the end of the decade, uh, a a new uh, uh, um, Bar is you know, the bar is raised again on action adventure uh, with Die Hard, which, if you ask me, kind of condenses everything that happens uh, in a Bond film or even a, a Raiders type film into one location. Right. If right. you if if you had if you had made it, it sort of turns the third act into the whole movie, uh, where the villain and the hero are in the same space the whole movie playing a playing a game of cat and mouse against each other, and 
Uh, and that just means, you know, more action and more of a, of a pressure cooker effect. Um, as you know, that whole building can barely contain the action and conflict inside it until it ends up blowing up uh, <laughs> at the end of the second half. So, uh, Chris, I've seen we've taken up a good amount of your time here. So um, I, I think we can wrap up saying that y- you wouldn't have pursued the career you have but for an 80s film, or maybe two. I noticed that you have uh, stolen my butt for construction now, but yes, <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I, I, came, I went to see Raiders as a young man, and, uh, and, uh, and by the end of the decade, Die Hard turned me into a writer. So I could say, yes, uh, I came of age as a screenwriter uh, and moved from entertainer to writer, uh, inspired by films of the 80s, since this is the 80th podcast, I will say it, I will own it, uh, until somebody calls me from, from the 70s podcast, I'll, I'll say that. And I'll come up with a new story for the 90s podcast. But I actually think that, 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 that is right on the nose. Uh, but yes, you know, I, I was becoming a young, a young adult in the 80s, uh, learning to write and working in the entertainment industry and, and heavily influenced by it. And even though you know, uh, Firestorm comes out in the 90s, it's a throwback. And it it, has, it is definitely an eighty has an eighties aesthetic uh, that uh, you know I still well, love. Chris, we appreciate your time today. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Will, and thank you, Ray. Yep. Thanks, Chris, and thanks to all the idiots. So, Ray, look once mm-hmm. again, right? This stuff. Uh, let's put in some um, screenwriter vernacular. This story wrote itself. I don't know that Chris knew when he first came on that he would learn. This, this, this thing about his own journey, that the 1980s is what led him to the successful career that he has today. Yeah, he learned everything he needed to know from the 80s, uh, that uh, the happy ending is king. Right. And um, horror movies should always have somebody survive. Mm. So this leads me to, um, we have proven yes. beyond a shadow of a doubt mm-hmm. that Raiders of the Lost Ark yes. has set the bar <laughs> For every movie, every movie moving uh-huh. past it. True. Absolutely. And you know, and much like uh, the movies of the 1980s, this episode had a happy ending. As they all should. And we'll talk to you next time on The 80s. See ya. See ya.